When I was about 14, in the mid-1980s, I went to St. Louis with my family to clean out my great-grandmother's house. She was old and rich, the second wife of the so-called Sponge King of America, which is another story. When we got to the house, four stories of stone mansion filled with treasures from around the world, we were told to look everywhere, under everything. And sure enough, we'd lift up a mattress and there was money. We'd open a dry cleaner's bag hanging in a closet and there were stock certificates. It was one of those days when you could walk into any room and imagine your life changing. It happens. In 2007, in a small town in Minnesota, out there on the edge of the prairie, someone pulls a painting out of a storage closet in a Lutheran church. It's been there for years. No one has thought anything about it. A picture of Jesus. Every church in the world has a picture of Jesus. But the pastor decides to call the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Curators hate these kinds of calls. Nine out of ten times, you have to figure out how to tell someone their treasure is actually trash. And yet, there's always the chance you could change someone's life. Maybe your own. So, you pick up the phone. This time, the curator can't believe what he's hearing. He tells the pastor he'll come see the painting as soon as he can. Until then, he says, keep it locked in a bank. This is the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, a bonus episode on masterpieces hiding in plain sight and what happens when they're found. Who knows? 2023 could be your lucky year. I'm Tim Gehring. Here's some recent cases of art jackpots, just to get you thinking. 1991, a former truck driver named Terry Horton buys a painting in a California thrift shop for $5 to give to her friend. But the friend can't fit it in her trailer home. So, Terry tries to sell it at a garage sale. Maybe you've heard this story. It became a documentary called Who the F*** is Jackson Pollock? Because, that's right, someone at the garage sale recognizes the style, and soon the painting is declared a Jackson Pollock painting worth as much as $50 million. 2010. A guy named Rick is browsing a garage sale when he finds two boxes of glass plate negatives by Ansel Adams, the landscape photographer, buys them for $45, supposedly worth 
200 million. 2014. A guy in France opens his attic to repair a leaky roof and finds a supposed Caravaggio painting worth as much as 136 million. And on and on. Makes you want to quit your day job, right? And start hanging out at Goodwill. In fact, these sorts of discoveries happen so often you start to wonder about people. Don't people know great art when they see it? Well, no. Even though 90% of Americans said in a recent survey that museums are great assets to their community, almost 80% hadn't been to a museum in a year. In a BuzzFeed kind of quiz asking people to name the creator of well-known pieces like the Mona Lisa and Starry Night and The Scream, only 7% of people could do it. Could you? I don't know. It's not surprising, maybe. Art museums until very recently have been the social club of the well-to-do, right? Where the elite meet to aesthete. Aestheticize? That's a word an aesthete would use. For most of the existence of art, most art has been entirely private, seen by very few people. There was a collector in England named Sir Ashton Lever, who, in 1773, went out of his way to announce, This is to inform the public that being tired out with the insolence of the common people, who I have hitherto indulged with a sight of my museum, I am now come to the resolution of refusing admittance to the lower class, except that they come provided with a ticket from some gentleman or lady of my acquaintance. To know art, in other words. First he had to know someone in the 1%. And something like, well, 99% of us don't. Lucky for Gethsemane Lutheran Church, back in 2007, they're painting at something most of these forgotten masterworks do not. A signature and a date. Ari Schaeffer, 1851. Of course, 99.999% of us are unfamiliar with Ari Schaeffer, much less what he was up to in 1851. So let's go back even further to the 1820s, when Ari Schaeffer is a young artist hired to teach the children of Louis-Philippe how to draw. You don't know Louis-Philippe? Well, there were a lot of them, actually. This Louis-Philippe is really Louis-Philippe III, Duke of Orleans. But his father, also named Louis-Philippe, had changed his name to Philippe Egalité, or Equality, in a kind of weird bid to save himself during the French Revolution. Which didn't work. He was guillotined anyway. So our Louis-Philippe calls himself the first. Clean slate. He's a kind of playboy soldier who flees France during the revolution and spends the next 21 years moving around the world. To Switzerland and Scandinavia and Italy and England and the United States and even Cuba. Ingratiating himself into 
aristocratic circles and random jobs, and a marriage in Sicily, but always refusing to fight against his home country. And then, soon after he returns to France, he finds himself in the royal court as an advisor to King Charles X, which is a pretty good gig until he realizes, like a lot of people in France, that King Charles X is terrible. Just a retrograde jerk, really. So, in 1830, the people revolt again, and Louis-Philippe puts himself in a position to be the next king of France, should anyone ask. And soon enough, someone does ask, begs him, really, after rioting all the way from Paris to Orleans to sell him on taking the job, Ari Scheffer. Louis-Philippe takes the job. I mean, of course he does, right? But he makes a point of calling himself not the king of France, but the king of the French. See what he did there? The French did. He's the citizen king, supposedly. Ari Scheffer becomes the unofficial court painter. Not bad for a guy who was recently teaching kids how to draw. Now, the thing about French politics in the early 1800s is that nothing lasts, except for chaos. That is forever. Barricades in the streets, Bonaparte's coming and going, guillotines, it's permanent disorder. Louis-Philippe is in office only about a month when he and his wife are accused of assassinating a prince to give their son the guy's inheritance, somehow. Even though everyone is pretty sure the prince died playing sex games with his mistress. In fact, Louis-Philippe never gets a break. Over the next 18 years, he survives seven assassination attempts. Once, he's walking down the street with his sons during a parade. And this guy up in a tower unloads on him with a 25-barrel gun he's built himself. A gun that becomes known as the Machine Infernale. He kills 18 people, but somehow the king escapes with a musket ball only grazing his forehead. Sheffer, meanwhile, is doing great. He and his younger brother, who's also an artist, are inundated with commissions. They open a workshop in Paris and put their students to work, making so many paintings with Ari's signature on it that it's hard to know what he's actually made. But in 1837, he exhibits an enormous painting, six by eight feet, that he ostensibly made himself. He calls it Christ the Consolator, a picture of Jesus surrounded by the afflicted and oppressed of the past 2,000 years. An African slave, a medieval serf, a Polish freedom fighter defeated in a recent uprising against Russian rule. It's an image inspired by a Bible verse. I have come to heal the brokenhearted and to preach deliverance to the captives, to liberate those who are shattered under their chains. 
Perhaps Schaeffer really thought this was what his friend Louis Philippe was going to do. Heal the brokenhearted. Liberate the oppressed. Or maybe he just thought it could sell. And it does. To Louis Philippe's oldest son, who gives it to the Lutheran princess he was about to marry. But Louis Philippe's luck eventually runs out. In 1848, revolutions are breaking out all across Europe, right? And so, on February 24, the king of the French decides it's time to skedaddle. He gets in a disguise and jumps in a cab, calling himself Mr. Smith, and flees to England. He abdicates, in other words, and puts his nine-year-old grandson on the throne. Ari Scheffer helps the royal family escape, and then he joins the fight on the side of the government during the inevitable uprising. Brutal street fighting in Paris. 10,000 people die in just a few days. Scheffer is so shocked by the cruelty of the government he's fighting for and the misery of the lower classes that afterward he withdraws from political life. When another Bonaparte, Napoleon III, takes over in the chaos that ensues and becomes the last king of France, Scheffer refuses to make portraits of him or his family. What he does make are more and more copies of his Christ the Consolator. Somehow, by the mid-1800s, the painting has become one of the most popular Protestant images in the world. Engravings are making their way across Europe and across the Atlantic to America. Washington Irving, the author of The Headless Horseman, among other things, sees a print in a shop window in New York in 1848 and supposedly bursts immediately into tears. There was nothing superior to it, he would say, in the world of art. It becomes popular especially with New England abolitionists. Harriet Beecher Stowe even goes to Sheffer's studio during a trip to Paris the year after publishing Uncle Tom's Cabin and calls him a poet of the highest order. In 1850, a Harvard professor in Boston commissions a version of Christ the Consolator for the equivalent of a couple thousand dollars. And somehow, 50 or 60 years later, it's acquired by a Lutheran pastor from Dassel, Minnesota. In 2007, when the painting is rediscovered, the curator from the Minneapolis Institute of Art explains all of this, more or less, to the church. And the church thinks about it and prays, and thinks about it some more and prays. It's not always clear what to do, actually, when you find a painting worth tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. It shouldn't be, anyway. Those art jackpots I talked about earlier, the guy who found the Ansel Adams negatives, he tries making prints from them and selling them, but ends up suing the company selling them, claiming 
he never got the money. The truck driver with the Jackson Pollock, she turns down multi-million dollar offers, believing it to be worth much more, and ends up dying without selling it. And now, her family can't seem to sell it at all. Well, after a year of thinking and praying, the church decides to donate the painting to the museum, where you can see it for free, every day but Monday. Third floor, gallery 357, in the corner. Almost as if you'd found it yourself. And maybe better. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art and made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim McGarry. We are busy working on Season 5. Until then, more bonus episodes coming up. Please rate and review us wherever you listen, and keep your eyes open. You never know.